Well, welcome back uh, after lunch. And uh, also, let me welcome uh, those of you who are just joining us for the first time. I'm Roger Pilon, director of Cato Center for Constitutional Studies. The second panel uh, in today's program covers federalism and uh, separation of powers, uh, basic structural features in the Constitution. To illustrate those features, we look at three important uh, but quite different cases the court decided during uh, its last term. The first dealing with the president's recess appointments power. The second with the power of the state's citizens through the referendum process to ban state officials from using affirmative action practices. And the third involving, dare I say, the treaty power, chemical weapons, and marital infidelity. Not quite the court's everyday fare. Um, we're fortunate to have a distinguished panel to discuss these decisions, so let me turn to them right now. And I'll introduce each uh, just before he speaks, uh, starting with uh, Noel Francisco, who argued the uh, recess appointments case before the court walking away with a unanimous decision on behalf of his uh, client, even if it may not have been exactly the opinion that he wanted to see from that decision. NLRB v. Noel Canning arose after President Obama made three recess appointments to the National Labor Relations Board when the Senate was arguably not in recess. So the question was whether the president had evaded the Constitution's advice and consent requirement, and if so, whether the court would say so in the ringing way that Judge David Sintel had done below in the D.C. Circuit, or rather would give us a more restrained and arguably less principled account of the issues at stake, as Justice Scalia would contend in one of his furious concurrences, as Adam Liptak of the New York Times has dubbed it. Here to address those issues is Noel Francisco. Uh, Noel is a partner at Jones Day here in Washington, appearing frequently before the court to represent companies and individuals in civil and criminal litigation involving federal actions by governments and congressional investigations. A graduate of both the college and the law school at the University of Chicago, my alma mater, he uh, clerked for both Judge Michael Ludig on the Fourth Circuit and Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. He's a frequent guest on national media, and we're pleased to have him with us today. Please welcome Noel Francisco. Thanks, Roger. It's great uh, to be here with you all. Uh, fantastic panel. Uh, Professor Rosencrantz and I actually go way back when we were in the Office of Legal Counsel together at the Department of Justice during the Bush administration, and it's fascinating because even back then, we were debating internally for the government the very issues that we're talking about on this panel today. Uh, one of the hot topics at the time was the topic Nick is going to talk about, which is the intersection between federalism and international law. Recess appointments were always on the table, as were uh, affirmative action issues. So it's really fascinating that over all these years, the same basic issues of federalism and separation of powers are the ones that continue to be on the table and the ones that continue uh, to, to, to be in need of being addressed by the Supreme Court. I'm going to talk about just one of those issues, and that's the president's recess appointment power and the Noel Canning case. I don't know how familiar the audience is with 
recess appointments generally and how they work, but I'll just give you a little bit of an overview on the background of the case and the issues, uh, talk about briefly what the Supreme Court held in the Noel Canning case, and then just leave you with a few observations, including uh, the one that Roger intimated to as to whether or not um, uh, the ruling was as fulsome and, and as robust as, as we had hoped it was. So basically, the way the appointments process works is that most senior government officials are supposed to be appointed only after the Senate secures the advice and consent of the Senate. There's an exception to that. That exception to the rule is called the Recess Appointments Clause, which allows the president to make recess appointments, that is, appointments without seeking the Senate advice and consent, uh, during the recess of the Senate to those vacancies that arise during the recess of the Senate. Now, this case dates back to uh, January 2012, when the president purported to make three recess appointments to the National Labor Relations Board. Now, presidents really for, uh, for two centuries have been making aggressive recess appointments, recess appointments that arguably transcend the uh, text and an original understanding of the recess appointments clause. But President Obama's appointments were unique in that they took the recess appointment power a step further than any of his predecessors had previously gone. During the time when President Obama purported to make these recess appointments, the Senate was in fact convening sessions every three days. These so-called pro forma sessions where the Senate gavels in and out of session very quickly, uh, pretty much for the purpose of preventing the president from making recess appointments. This, this uh, process of convening these so-called pro forma sessions isn't new. They were used by Senator Reid to block recess appointments from President George W. Bush. Uh, they continued on to the Obama administration. And in fact, uh, pro forma sessions date back to at least the 1850s, where we were able to find an instance of uh, the Senate using pro forma sessions to go out of session in order to uh, change the carpets in the Senate chamber. They convened into session very quickly so that they could remain generally in session, but then adjourned out of session so the carpets could be changed. A long-standing process. No president had ever asserted that they were constitutional nullities that could be ignored for the purpose of the Recess Appointments Clause. That was President Obama's innovation. That's what made these appointments particularly vulnerable. So once the president made these appointments and we recognized their particular vulnerability, we started watching the NLRB's docket. And lo and behold, the first order that the NLRB issued with the newly constituted board was against a company called the Noel Canning Company. Uh, we couldn't really turn that one down, so we reached out to Noel Canning. We also got together with some of our usual allies in these types of cases, like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Coalition for a Democratic Workplace, and Noel Canning was on board with challenging the board's order under the Recess Appointments Clause. <clears throat> so we initially teed it up to the D.C. Circuit, where our principal argument was the argument that we ultimately prevailed on in the Supreme Court. That is, our principal argument was that whatever else the recess appointments clause may mean, it certainly does not allow the president to make recess appointments when the Senate is, in fact, convening sessions every three days. We, <coughs> excuse me, we also made the two more historical arguments about the meaning of the phrase the recess and what vacancies are eligible for recess appointments. But our principal argument did focus on the pro forma session issue. We were uh, skeptical as to whether a court of appeals would be willing to uh, rule in our favor on the originalism grounds, since it requ would require the court to at least call into question recess appointments dating back 
uh, about 200 years. And we thought we were on firmer ground in a court of appeals with a somewhat narrower argument. Well, it turns out in the DC Circuit, at least, we were spectacularly wrong. Uh, when we got to argument, the panel had virtually no interest in the principal argument that we had been advancing, but was very interested in our alternative, uh, our alternative historical arguments. And as Roger uh, explained, the DC Circuit issued a ruling on the broad historical arguments, holding first that the recess of the Senate, the time when the president can make recess appointments, is limited to the period that falls in between Senate sessions, and that the vacancies eligible for recess appointments are only those that happen to arise during that very same recess. It didn't address our third question. That's essentially how the case was teed up to the United States Supreme Court, where the government asked the Supreme Court to hear the case. And interestingly, the government only wanted the court to hear those two historical questions. It didn't want the court to take on the pro forma session question either. Rather, we were the ones that interjected that issue into the case in the Supreme Court, arguing to the court that, yes, they ought to hear the case, but they ought to hear the whole case, including the question of the validity of the recess appointments. And that's how it ultimately went up to the Supreme Court. Now, from the beginning of this case, we firmly believed that we would win, but it was very unclear on how we would win, given that there were three independent routes to a victory. Our basic view, and my basic view from the beginning, was that we would get to five, but we would likely get to five by cobbling together votes based on different legal theories, uh, ultimately to hold that the recess appointments are unconstitutional. That's why it was always very important to us uh, to include the pro forma session issue in the case. When we got up to the court, it turns out that our strategy paid off because what the Supreme Court held with a five justice majority was that the pro forma sessions were constitutionally valid and that the president had no authority to ignore those sessions, but that five justice majority was unwilling to go with us on the historical arguments. It's not, as I read the opinion, that they thought that they were wrong. The way the court described it was that they thought that they weren't clearly enough right to allow the court to overcome what it perceived to be uh, a couple of hundred, of hundred years of executive branch practice. So nonetheless, the court ruled by a five justice majority that pro forma sessions were valid, that when the Senate was convening pro forma sessions every three days, the president could not make recess appointments. And for that reason, these appointments were unconstitutional. The four justice concurrence written by Justice Scalia would have adopted uh, our historical arguments and held that uh, the recess of the Senate is limited to a very particular period of time. That which falls in between the Senate's formal sessions usually occurs once a year around Christmas time and that the only vacancies eligible for a recess appointment during the recess of the Senate are the ones that also happen to become vacant during the recess of the Senate. You really do have two very different theories in how the court approached the case, and now is where I'm going to pivot to and, 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 and wrap up with my observations on the case. You do have two very different approaches to how the issue was resolved, with Justice Scalia taking a more traditional, original understanding, textualist approach to reaching the right result, Justice Breyer taking what could be called a much more, uh, uh, I don't know, what's the term they use, functionalist approach to resolving the issue. In my mind, however, there's not a lot of practical difference between the two results, because under either approach, going forward, I think we're going to be seeing very few, if any, recess appointments. Right now, all the Senate has to do, or the House has to do, uh, in order to prevent the president from making recess appointments is to convene pro forma sessions every three days. 
that happens in one of two ways. The Senate can by itself decide to convene pro forma sessions every three days and hence prevent recess appointments. Alternatively, there's another provision of the Constitution that prohibits the Senate from adjourning for more than three days unless the House consents. Well, the House can withhold its consent and thereby force the Senate to convene pro forma sessions every three days. So the only time that you would likely have the president making, pro forma, making recess appointments is where the same party controls both houses of Congress and the presidency. Well, that's precisely the type of situation where you don't need recess appointments because the president's nominees are going to get confirmed, uh, particularly now that we no longer have uh, the filibuster available to prevent executive branch nominations. So although there's a big theoretical difference between the approaches of the majority and the concurrence, I don't think there's a real practical difference. Uh, the second observation I'd like to make is that uh, this is really not, nor should it have been understood as a political case. It was often portrayed that way as a Democratic president of using executive power in a Republican Congress trying to rein in, uh, depending on what your perspective is, rein in that, uh, that excessive uh, use of power. But, but the thing is, th this is an issue that gores, everybody's, uh, that, that gores everybody's ox. When Nick and I were in the government, uh, Republican presidents used recess appointments almost as aggressively as Democratic presidents, and in ways that many of us in this room would likely view as unconstitutional. Going forward, this ruling is going to constrain Republican presidents just as it constrains Democratic presidents. I would agree that in general, President Obama has been more abusive of executive power generally than President Bush, with the big difference being that President Bush's aggressive uses of executive power tended to be in the area of foreign affairs and war. Those are areas where the president's uh, authority is at its zenith, whereas President Obama's uh, excessive use of executive power is in the domestic realm where Congress is supposed to have a role. Uh, so I do think President Obama has been more egregious in his use of executive power than predecessors, but not so much when it comes to recess appointments, where presidents of all political stripes have, in my view, uh, uh, gradually expanded this power to the point where uh, it became all-encompassing. And that brings me to the final point that I'd like to leave you with, and that is why, in my judgment, the role of the Supreme Court is so crucial in policing separation of powers, and in particular in policing the expansive use of executive power and the expansion of executive power. Uh, this case kind of illustrates the problem. Every president, regardless of political power, has an incentive to expand executive branch power. Republicans, Democrats, they always want to expand executive power. Every Congress always has a constituency that favors the president. His party will generally go along with expansive assertions of executive power. So the dynamic you have is one branch of government always working to expand its power, the other branch of government that's supposed to be the counterweight uh, always having at best tepid opposition and sometimes outright acquiescence. And so what you see is the natural expansion over time of executive power. And I think that you could trace that through virtually any area of executive power where we've seen it naturally expand under the same pattern. A president aggressively expanding and a Congress either uh, being lukewarm in pushing back or outright acquiescing in it, and hence an overall expansion until ultimately the issue reaches the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court plays a vital role in bringing executive power back into the realm where it is supposed to be. 
But that also underscores the role that private parties play in this kind of litigation. The reason why these cases are successful in the Supreme Court, notwithstanding that you often have uh, what could ar be argued as congressional acquiescence in an expansion of executive power, is that at the end of the day, separation of powers are not meant to protect one branch as against the other, but they're meant to protect individuals and individual entities as against the government in general. So when the Noel Canning Company brings this lawsuit, it's not bringing this lawsuit because it wants greater congressional power and it wants less executive branch power. It doesn't really care about that issue. It's bringing this lawsuit because it doesn't want the government exercising power as against the Noel Canning Company, regardless of what agency is exercising that power. And the genius of our system is that it limits the exercise of all government power by chopping it up sticking it in separate branches and making those branches come to an agreement before they can exercise that power collectively as against an individual or a company. That at the end of the day is what makes separation of powers and federalism so important because at the end of the day, the goal is to protect the rights of individuals as against the government as a whole. And when the courts play their role in stepping in, they help police those boundaries and make sure that the executive and congressional branches can't cut deals with one another. Uh, that ultimately redounds to the detriment of individual liberty. Uh, Roger, that's pretty much what I have. And I think I kept it within my time limit. You have indeed. And you covered all that you needed to cover. All right. It's nice when you walk away with a nine-to-nothing opinion, isn't it? You know, you know you've done your job. Uh, we're going to turn now to the affirmative action case. Uh, should he, the coalition to defend affirmative action by any means necessary? That was the full uh, name of the um, um, respondent in, in this case, uh, otherwise known as BAM. That was the, uh, the acronym that the responded and the plaintiff below uh, went under. Uh, it was not your usual uh, affirmative action case, however, because it originated as a challenge to a citizen initiative banning the use of affirmative action by Michigan state officials, thus raising the odd question of whether banning racial discrimination violates the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Uh, David Bernstein will answer that question and more, I expect. Uh, he is uh, the George Mason University Foundation Professor at the George Mason University School of Law, a graduate of Brandeis and uh, the Yale Law School. Um, he is a prolific author of books we at Cato have published and of a pro provocatively titled book from Chicago, Rehabilitating Lochner, Defending Individual Rights Against Progressive Reform. Uh, Lochner was the case, uh, many of you may know, uh, that uh, is uh, the foundation of the verb to Lochnerize, and it is the case that progressives think was uh, the worst case the Supreme Court ever handed down, uh, except for um, uh, the uh, Taney decision. And, and uh, it, is the found it is the case that uh, launched... Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes into his tirade against uh, the idea that the Constitution uh, is a document designed to defend uh, capitalism. He said it can be uh, just it can justify capitalism as well as socialism. 
which of course is absolutely wrong since the Constitution speaks of property and contract. Without those, you will not have capitalism. And the court has done a pretty good job in the intervening years of removing those rights from the Constitution. But I digress. Uh, among his other books uh, are one that is particularly relevant to the case that he's going to discuss here from the Duke University Press called Only One Place of Redress, African-Americans, Labor Regulations, and the Courts from Reconstruction to the New Deal. Uh, he is, as I said, a prolific author, so please welcome Professor David Bernstein. Thank you, Roger. Uh, great to be here. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, I may cough my way through this. My toddler just started preschool. Those of you who've been through that know there are little, little typhoid Marys spreading germs everywhere for a month or two. So as Roger said, Schutte involved a challenge to a proposition, a referendum in Michigan, Proposition 2, which banned the use of race and sex preferences in government activities, including universities. It was a reaction uh, to the Gruder litigation. Gruder upheld uh, the use of preferences by University of Michigan, so uh, people got together and started a referendum to ban them by statute uh, via the referendum process. And the Sixth Circuit, in an 8-7 to seven en banc opinion, held that Proposition 2 violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause by selectively altering the political process in ways that disfavored members of minority groups a transgression of the so-called political process doctrine, which we'll get back to in a moment. The Supreme Court, as expected, overruled uh, the Sixth Circuit, uh, six to two, and the real uh, question was, will they get rid of the political process doctrine entirely, or will they find a way to keep it? And the plurality opinion by Justice Kennedy, joined by Alito and Roberts, endorsed a relatively limited version of the doctrine that a state's alteration of the political process is unconstitutional when it will lead to, go to govern encouragement of or participation in a demonstrated injury on the basis of race. So that raises the question, well, what's a demonstrated injury on the basis of race? And the court said, well, whatever that is, it is not banning affirmative action preferences for the reason Roger Pallon uh, uh, said, which is that to, peop to most people, and certainly the conservatives on the court, not have, have the government treat everyone equally by law can possibly mean that you are discriminating, uh, that you're causing a racial injury to somebody. But of course, that's exactly what many advocates of affirmative action dispute. And they say, well, it looks like it's non-discrimination, but actually you're allowing underlying societal discrimination to win out, and therefore it is a racial injury. So Shuti, as portrayed in the media and in Supreme Court previews, was not supposed to be a case about affirmative action. It was supposed to be about this political process doctrine. But actually, because they retained the political process doctrine, but held that it didn't apply in this particular case, uh, because affirmative action is not a racial injury, it really did depend uh, what the justices' views of affirmative action were. And they asserted what they were uh, in, the, in the footnotes. Um, there are a lot of interesting things one could say about the case. Uh, I say more things in the volume here that you all got, so you can look at that if you're interested. But for now, for my short time allotted, I'm going to make two things. I'm going to talk about two things. First, I'm going to try to make some sense out of the political process doctrine, which is no one's really done very well, uh, to my knowledge, before. And the second is I'm going to try to take on Justice Sotomayor's dissent, which we'll get to. So the political process doctrine is a really odd doctrinal duck because it allows a state law to be overturned in the absence of any evidence of discriminatory intent. No one has claimed in any of the 
prior political process doctrine cases that the referenda or whatnot were motivated by discriminatory intent. So I came up with a, I think, plausible defense of the doctrine that suggests that serves as sort of a reverse Caroline products. Caroline products, as you may remember, is the famous 1938 case where in footnote four, among other things, the Supreme Court said that laws that make classifications that seem to classify people who are discrete and insular minorities are subject to extra scrutiny, strict scrutiny we call it these days, under the Equal Protection Clause. And this was intuitively logical in 1938. You are the New Deal court, now dominated by the liberal majority. You want to get rid of the old Lochnerish doctrines where you could review economic legislation for rationality, but you don't want to get rid of the Equal Protection Clause entirely. So what do you do? You say, well, how do we know if presumptively a law is irrational? Well, if it's classifying based on what seems like irrational, arbitrary criteria that sort of everyone would agree, like, well, just the color of your skin, that at least lets us have extra scrutiny. And given the fact that African-Americans in 1938 were largely concentrated in the South, where they were largely disenfranchised, Asian immigrants weren't allowed to become citizens, they couldn't vote at all, it made sense to think that, hey, you know, legislation that classifies based on race is probably uh, going to be unfair to these groups since they have little, if any, say in the political process. Caroline Products lost some of its salience as African-Americans moved out of the South uh, in large numbers, and even more so once the 1965 Voting Rights Act guaranteed minority voting rights. But African-Americans still faced significant political disadvantages because they were largely isolated from the rest of the nation's population. Housing segregation, school segregation, very low rates of intermarriage, uh, and so forth. A majority, even a non-prejudiced majority, which was not what we had in the 1960s, uh, will not take generally an isolated minority's interests fully into account in the legislative process. Out of sight, as they say, is out of mind. But that disadvantage is balanced by what modern public choice theory teaches us, which is that concentrated minority groups also have a big advantage in the political process. It's easier to organize. It's easier to figure out who might be on your side. It's easier to figure out what your common interest is always. Uh, often, <coughs> I should say. <coughs> uh, and once African Americans were guaranteed the right to vote by the Voting Rights Act, and really by the 15th Amendment, but uh, uh, as the Voting Rights Act enforced, uh, then uh, they could serve, they, they, well, they have one disadvantage, people don't care that much about what's going on with them uh, if they're isolated. On the other hand, they can organize themselves as this discrete group, just like every other concentrated interest group, the sugar lobby, military veterans, realtors, they could then use those advantages to secure legislation in their interest. And that's what they did. For example, in Akron, Ohio, uh, in 1967, uh, they got a fair housing referendum passed along with their allies in the city, and that was then overturned by referendum. The Supreme Court said, well, that's unconstitutional because you are changing the political process. All of a sudden now, African-Americans have some political power. Now you could say, well, that's just the way the political process works. Everyone could use the referendum process. And that would have been a good argument if referenda were often used to invalidate laws passed by city councils in Akron and elsewhere. But in fact, referenda were quite rare and, and remain quite rare, especially if used simply to overturn legislation. So that raises the suspicion of the court. Well, wait a second. You don't ever use referenda for anything else. All of a sudden, black people get an anti-discrimination law passed, and then you decide to, to do that to, to, to overturn ordinary legislation. That strikes us as perhaps uh, really unfair and... Uh, 
a way of preventing African Americans from counterbalancing the disadvantages they face from prejudice or indifference in the political sphere with the advantages they have for being a discrete and group, right? The concentrated group really cares about uh, the civil rights law. The majority of people in Africa may not care that much, but they're against it. So reverse Caroline products, uh, if I'm right about, and, and if you read all the cases I try to discuss it in the, in the article, it actually, actually all come out the right way uh, if you th take this theory into account. Uh, if that's right, it has a lot less salience now that minority groups are obviously much better integrated into society uh, in 2014 than they were in 1968, and it may very well be time to abandon the doctrine completely, as Justice Scalia concurring in Shuti argued. But it's worth at least understanding the implicit underlying rationale for the doctrine before deciding whether to ditch it. Now on to the funner part, which is uh, Justice Sotomayor's dissenting opinion, which received tremendous attention for its assertion that race matters. Like we said, the case actually did turn on what people thought about affirmative action, even though it wasn't supposed to, the justices thought. Uh, and Sotomayor gave a rousing defense of affirmative action. But the oddity of the opinion is that she treats it as self-evident that there are two and only two racial minority groups in the United States, African-Americans and Hispanics. And it's just bizarre to treat Hispanics as a racial minority group, but not Asian-Americans. Among other things, while there are many uh, white Hispanics, not just Hispanics of partial Hispanic ancestry, with partial Hispanic ancestry, but descended of Spanish and Portuguese immigrants, descendants of Europeans who settled in Latin America, Sephardic Jews, like my children are now half Hispanic, and so on, uh, there are by definition basically no white Asians. So the Mayor's opinion nevertheless ignores Asian Americans entirely for the obvious reason that their success for winning, uh, in winning admission uh, to universities undermines her entire uh, all the charts she gives about, well, look, minority emissions, racial minority emissions have gone down because in states that have uh, rejected uh, affirmative action preferences, Michigan, California, and so on. But, of course, Asians aren't on those charts. So she has to ignore Asians or, or her point is lost. Justice Sotomayor's implicit view of race in Shuti that includes a group with a common linguistic heritage, uh, but not Asians, uh, also undermines the following widely quoted language from her dissent. Here I'm quoting Sotomayor. And race matters for other reasons that really are only skin deep, that cannot be discussed in any other way, that cannot be wished away. Race matters to a young man's view of society when he spends his teenage years watching others tense up as he passes, no matter the neighborhood where he grew up. Race matters to a young woman's sense of self when she states her hometown and has pressed, no, where are you really from? Regardless of how many generations her family has been in the country. Race matters to a young person addressed by a stranger in a foreign language, which she does not understand because only English was spoken at home. Race matters because of the slights and snickers, the silent judgments that reinforce that most crippling of thoughts, I do not belong here. Very powerful, but an odd rallying cry, race matters, from a justice for who, for all intents and purposes, treats Asian Americans as if they were white. Nor does she provide a rationale for limiting the scope of her concerns to African Americans and Hispanics or, any, or to any particular groups at all. Are Hispanics and African Americans more likely to be asked where they are from or assumed not to speak English than Asian Americans? Do they suffer slights, snickers, and silent judgments more than Indian Sikhs wearing their headgear or Hasidic Jewish men with side curls and fur hats, uh, even in the summer, uh, or uh, Mennonites and Amish in traditional dress or Arab women in hijabs? Unlike fair-skinned Hispanics who are covered by her race matter, even though they could easily blend in with the white population more generally, uh, none of the groups I mentioned above 
uh, are eligible for affirmative action preferences in general, except for Asians who are eligible sometimes, but certainly not in university admissions, and as we know, actually are discriminated against in university admissions because universities think there are too many of them for diversity purposes. In fact, judging from her opinion, the breadth of Sotomayor's race matters concerns is not any discernibly logical or empirical theory about for whom race or, if you will, simply different appearance from the mainstream matters. Rather, being a racial minority is implicitly defined by an arbitrary combination of artificial census categories, university emissions affirmative action policies, and a sense of which minority groups broadly construed are not making it. The making it factor, by the way, is itself problematic because people are, groups are not monolithic. So uh, Asians are, are making it, I suppose, in some general way. But if you look at the Hamang uh, immigrants living in Minnesota, they have some of the worst socioeconomic uh, indicators in the country, much worse than most Hispanic groups. Even for that matter, even for whites, uh, whites in Appalachia aren't doing especially well. So if it's just socioeconomic, it doesn't work either. So in short, despite her loud protestations that race matters and Supreme Court decisions, as in Shuti, must take that into account, and the case should have come out the other way because of that, race doesn't really matter to Justice Sotomayor. What matters to Sotomayor is preserving affirmative action preferences for African Americans and for a non-racial linguistic group, Americans who happen to have some Spanish-speaking ancestry. In other words, what really matters to Justice Sotomayor is her political ideology, and race is important only to the extent that the concept can be manipulated to suit that ideology. Thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, now we're going to turn finally to uh, what may be the most unusual case the court has taken up in recent years, Bond v. United States. The case that I mentioned uh, at the outset involves the treaty power, chemical weapons, and marital infidelity. Um, I should probably say no more about it, but leave it instead to uh, Nick Rosencrantz to untangle this tale of international and domestic intrigue. Uh, which arose through the U.S. Postal Service, no less. Um, Nick Rosencrantz is a professor of law at the Georgetown Law Center, and he's a senior fellow in constitutional studies right here at the Cato Institute. He's a graduate of the college and the law school at Yale. He clerked for Judge Frank Easterbrook on the Seventh Circuit and for uh, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy. He served as an attorney advisor in the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, and he testifies often before Congress on as a constitutional expert. Most important for our purposes today, his Harvard Law Review article, Executing the Treaty Power, formed the basis for Cato's amicus brief in Bond v. United States, and it was cited by Justice Scalia in his concurrence in the judgments. So please welcome Professor Nick Rosencrantz. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here talking about Bond v. United States. I think we've talked about this before here, actually, but uh, not, um, not uh, since the case has been decided. So this is a terrific case, first because it has such nice, lurid facts. Uh, Mrs. Bond discovered that her husband was having an affair with her neighbor and uh, putative best friend. And so Mrs. Bond did what anyone would do, which is she got herself some toxic chemicals and went across the street and spread them on the doorknob and on the car door and on the doormat and on the mailbox of the neighbor. 
Now, uh, the chemicals were, as it turns out, kind of farcically easy to spot. So the neighbor successfully avoided them on all but one occasion when she did touch a bit of one of the chemicals and got a little thumb burn. She ran some cold water over it and was fine. So that's how this case gets uh, started. But, um, and uh, so this uh, conduct by Mrs. Bond is um, to be frowned upon. And it's, um, <laughs> it's uh, all kinds of different state crime, of course. But oddly, she was not prosecuted for any of those state crimes. Rather, she was prosecuted by an ambitious assistant US attorney for violation of the federal Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act. So now, obviously, uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention, we entered into this treaty, you know, concerned about other stories, concerned probably about the use of chemical weapons in war, maybe in a, you know, more of a terrorist type of uh, situation. But um, so we entered into this treaty, and then Congress passed the statute to implement the treaty, Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act, obviously imagining a different kind of story from this story, but it seems to fit actually seems to capture Mrs. Bond if you read the language of the statute. And so, uh, you know, an assistant U.S. attorney said, well, it looks like the statute covers her. So we're going to prosecute her for a violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act. This case uh, has kind of an odd procedural history. So in the, uh, um, so uh, Mrs. Bond says, uh, I, I acknowledge the facts. I'll plead guilty, but I want to reserve my right to appeal on this constitutional question, which I'm going to lay out for you in a moment. But um, uh, so first, the government in the Third Circuit says, Ms. Bond doesn't even have standing to make her constitutional argument. And the Third Circuit oddly agrees with that. And uh, so then that question went up to the United States Supreme Court the Solicitor General confessed error as to that and agreed with Mrs. Bond when they got to the Supreme Court. Yes, of course, Mrs. Bond has standing to make her constitutional argument about the statute under which we're purporting to try her. So the court said 9-0, yes, she gets to make her argument. Okay, so now we're on to the merits. Mrs. Bond says, where does Congress get the power to enact this statute? As a general matter, if you're looking to see if Congress has power to enact a statute, what you do is you have a look at the list of congressional powers in Article 1, Section 8. And Mrs. Bond says, I had a look at the list, and I don't see anything about local uh, you know, assaults like this. I don't see anything that would seem to give Congress the power to uh, enact this statute. And the feds say something interesting in reply. So they say, well, okay, maybe it's not in the list, or actually really will concede, as it were, that it's not, or will waive any argument that it's in the list. Um, uh, but even if it's not in the list, that's okay. And the reason is this. Uh, there's this treaty. We entered into this treaty, the Chemical Weapons Convention, and entering into the treaty automatically gives Congress the power to pass this legislation, even if Congress would have lacked that power otherwise or to put the point in finer terms, uh, a treaty can increase the legislative power of Congress. A treaty can give Congress new power. That was the claim. 
And, um, you know, the government made that claim because they had seen in a case called Missouri v. Holland in 1920, Justice Holmes seemed to say that, seems to say actually that a treaty can increase the legislative power of Congress. If the treaty is okay, then the statute is automatically okay, Justice Holmes seemed to say. That was the argument. So the government says, uh, see Missouri v. Holland. Now, I had written an article in 2005 in the Harvard Law Review saying uh, that's wrong, saying a treaty cannot increase the legislative power of Congress. And so this case presented that question, presented that issue. Was Missouri v. Holland right or was I right and Missouri v. Holland uh, wrong? That was the big issue in the case that we all hoped that the court would answer. Now, so here's what happened, unfortunately. Six of the justices, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts writing for six of them, decided that the statute, the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act, doesn't cover Mrs. Bond, doesn't reach her conduct, right? So Mrs. Bond showed up making really two arguments. The statute doesn't cover me. And if the statute does cover me, then it's unconstitutional. Congress didn't have power to enact it. And six justices, Chief Justice Roberts for six justices say, um, uh, says uh, the statute doesn't reach her, right? Wanting to avoid the difficult constitutional question. And that's a bit of a um, predilection of this particular court and this particular Chief Justice, I would say. Um, you know, maybe to a fault. I think maybe to a fault. I'm all in favor of construing statutes narrowly to avoid constitutional problems and so forth, but really the statute was quite clear. Really the statute was quite clear. Um, the problem is each, each of the potentially ambiguous terms in the statute is defined by Congress. So you could say, well, you know, what quite is a chemical weapon? But it's all defined in the statute. So it's really hard to get around these statutory definitions. Um, statute says, no person may knowingly develop, produce, otherwise acquire, transfer, directly or indirectly receive, stockpile, retain, own, possess, or use, or threaten to use any chemical weapon. You'd say, OK, but how do we know that what Mrs. Bond was using was a chemical weapon? We know because we get a definition. So Congress has defined the phrase chemical weapon to mean, quote, a toxic chemical and its precursors, except where intended for a purpose not prohibited under this chapter, as long as the type and quantity is consistent with such a purpose, okay? Um, and uh, so, okay, now we know a chemical weapon is a toxic chemical, but what's a toxic chemical, you could say? But um, that's defined too. Toxic chemical, quote, any chemical which through its chemical action on life processes can cause death, temporary incapacitation, or permanent harm to humans or animals, there's just no question that these chemicals actually can do that. So you know, just it takes a little bit of work to trace through these statutory definitions, but at the end of the day, there's actually zero ambiguity here. It's almost as clear as a statute can uh, get. So you know, I'm in favor of construing statutes narrowly when they're ambiguous, but, uh, you know, to avoid a constitutional problem. But I'd say the statute was not ambiguous. Uh, so um, that was what the court did, um, six justices, thus evading the hugely important constitutional question, can a treaty increase the legislative power of Congress? Happily, though, three of the justices did take on the more interesting constitutional questions. And it generated the opinion also, the case also generated three interesting concurrences. Uh, so um, uh, a 
particular masterpiece was Justice Scalia's concurrence in the judgment in which he answered the big Missouri v. Holland question, can a treaty increase the legislative power of Congress? And he said, no. A treaty cannot increase the legislative power of Congress. There are two basic points uh, for seeing that. There's a textual argument, a structural argument. They're both really quite clear. Um, Justice Scalia says, look, uh, the necessary and proper clause gives to Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, that's the ones earlier in the list, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States, that's the later powers, including the treaty power. Uh, the treaty clause says the president shall have power bind with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. Now, what Justice Holmes didn't do in Missouri v. Holland, and indeed what no one had done until I did it in the Harvard Law Review, was string these two clauses together. See how these two clauses fit together. But so now Justice Scalia finally does this in the United States reports, and here's how they fit together. Just as a matter of grammar, the Congress shall have power, dot, 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 to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution, dot, 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 the president's power, bind with the advice and consent of the Senate, to make treaties. To make treaties. But that's not what it's, what's at issue here. This is the implementing of a treaty that's already been made. Right? Congress is claiming the power to implement this treaty that already exists. There's no sense in which this statute helped Congress, helped the president to make a treaty. The treaty's already made. This is about implementing treaties. And it's a simple textual point. Justice Scalia makes it eloquently in his uh, concurrence. And that's the basic textual point. You know, the structural point really should be obvious to all of you. If it's true, if it were true that a treaty could increase the legislative power of Congress, then it was a bit of a fool's errand to enumerate powers at all. Uh, the conventional wisdom, uh, per the restatement of uh, the law of foreign affairs, is that a treaty can be about anything. There are no subject matter limitations on treaties whatsoever. Now, a couple of justices disagree with that in this case as well, but you know, a lot of people think that. If that's so, and if Missouri v. Holland is right, it follows that uh, a treaty can give Congress plenary legislative power, essentially plenary legislative power. A treaty can be about anything, and uh, Congress can then pass statutes about all those same things. Congress can be given plenary legislative power. What, they would, what it would need is the president, the Senate, and say Zimbabwe to agree. And if they agree, then they can give Congress plenary legislative power. You know, I could offer you dozens of quotes throughout the ages of explaining how Congress cannot have plenary legislative power. We don't know quite what the scope of Congress's power is, but it can't be infinite. And the Missouri Holland principle seems like a loophole that can easily get you to infinity. Again, Justice Scalia sees this very clearly and makes the point very eloquently. Unfortunately, though, only for uh, himself and for Justice Thomas. So uh, that's the Scalia concurrence. Just to, I'll give you 30 seconds. Justice Thomas uh, says, let me talk a bit about the scope of the treaty power and goes out of his way to disagree with this premise that a treaty can be about anything and suggests treaties really have to be of bona fide international uh, concern. And Justice Alito writes a very kind of intriguing one-page kind of cryptic concurrence 
And it's really, it doesn't leave you quite crystal clear about where he comes out on these two different issues. He's with uh, Justice um, Thomas on scope of the treaty power, um, but he's a little bit, uh, he, he leaves the door open a bit as to this question of whether a treaty can increase the legislative power of Congress. So we don't actually know where Justice Alito comes out on that. But there's at least a magnificent opinion by Justice Scalia that I commend to all of you. It's two justices, unfortunately, not uh, five. But you know, I guess the good news is the other justices don't answer this question at all. Right? So on this issue, this important constitutional question, the score, as it were, is 2-0, or possibly 3-0, because the, others, the other justices don't take this on. So Justice Scalia's very powerful critique of Missouri v. Holland goes unanswered, and that, I would say, is good news. Missouri v. Holland remains the law of the land, but in a proper case, I think there's still hope that it will be overruled. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And so here, too, the uh, problem goes back to Oliver Wenzel Holmes. Um, all right. Do we have some discussion among the panelists of any of these cases? Anyone would like to comment? Nick? I just, I'll maybe just say a word about Noel Canning, about um, Noel's case. Uh, you know, I should just say, the, actually, the last time I was here, I had um, taken the train uh, down to come here to talk about Noel Canning, and I uh, predicted, I'm proud to say, that it would be 9-0, but it's not really my accomplishment. The reason I was able to offer up that prediction is I read Noel's brief on the train, and it really is a masterpiece. It, was, it seemed to me impossible after reading this brief that anybody could vote against this position. You know, in a way, it's sad that after we write these briefs and the cases are decided, nobody goes back and reads the briefs. But Noel's brief is actually a masterpiece in that case, and the 9-0 victory is entirely thanks to that. So, Of course, Noel was drawing upon the opinion of David Sentel on the exactly. D.C. Circuit. There was a, there was a lot of help, uh, both from, from professors, from amicus briefs and everything. Nick, I had a question for you, though, and it really ties our two cases together because one of the more unfortunate things in that Supreme Court's majority opinion in the Noel Canning case comes in the very last paragraph. We're in a total throwaway line. Justice Breyer cites Missouri against Holland in a favorable way. And I hated that. And I, I wanted to see if you had any insight into what he was getting at with that, given that it was the same term that Bond was decided. Yeah, I noticed that as well and was a little bit disturbed by it. You know, I wondered whether uh, he wanted to see whether Justice Kennedy would kind of balk at the citation. Now, it's cited for an utterly anodyne proposition. I remember, so, you know, it's the, the Constitution's a living document or something. But, um, but um, uh, um, yeah, I think it actually was a little bit of a test. And so that's a little bit of a hint that at least some justices still like Missouri v. Holland, sadly. Yeah. All right. We're going to now open up to questions from you. Um, please wait until the microphone uh, gets to you. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have. And I'm going to send our two microphone holders up to the alternate person after the, uh, as one person is asking uh, the person, you keep your hand up and I'll send it to, uh, to the next one. Let's take this gentleman right here. All right. And then. Uh, Joel Mandelman, I filed uh, one of the amicus briefs uh, in Shooty. During the oral argument, the attorney representing BAM made the flat-out statement that the 14th Amendment 
does not apply to whites. It only applies to blacks. And there was a slight pause, and he looked at Justice Sotomayor, and then he said, oh, and of course, Hispanics. <laughs> the ACLU lawyer that was representing one of the other parties on that side of the case never repudiated that argument. And it didn't seem, with the exception of a comment made by Justice Scalia during the oral argument, that everybody else just let her get away with that and nobody pounced on it and attacked her or demanded to know what the ACLU's position was. Did they agree with her or did they not agree? Do you have any insights into that or what, why this was sort of swept under the rug? I mean, I would guess that the conservative justices, you know, one hint, by the way, for those of you who want to be Supreme Court litigants, if you're going to want to win a case of the Supreme Court, it's better not to call your organization uh, by a name that sounds like you're going to blow up the Supreme Court <laughs> if they don't agree with you. Probably not a good idea. I, I would guess the conservative justices just thought that um, it was uh, obviously so contrary to uh, the law that um, they weren't going to mention it. They weren't. It wasn't worth repudiating. Uh, but I would say there's an interesting line um, in the dissent by Sotomayor where she says that you have to be member a member of a group to um, be protected by the Equal Protection Clause, which is wrong doctrinally, if that's what she meant. It's kind of an obscure line, but I hope she didn't mean that because I could I could cite and did cite it again here, several cases where the Supreme Court said there is, is the thing as a classification of one, where just one person's being discriminated against by the government, and that could be enough to uh, trigger the Equal Protection Clause. I, I would add, sometimes people say things that are so stupid that nobody feels the need to address it. No. Uh, Manny, <clears throat> questions? Do we have any other questions up here? Okay, here we go. Uh, Manny Klausner from the Reason Foundation and Individual Rights Foundation. We filed briefs in both Schutte and the Fisher versus University of Texas case. And I was curious, David, I, I love your acute analysis of the curling products perspective on Schutte. Love your dissection of Sotomayor's dissent. Uh, I was curious whether you have given any thought to, and would care to share if you have, uh, your sense of what may happen in Fisher round two if it comes back up from the Fifth Circuit again, as far as the view of racial preferences and perhaps the, uh, the argument for academic mismatch, whether that might play a part in it. That's a challenge to the affirmative action policies of the University of Texas. Well, um, you know, like everything else, right? almost everything else right now, a lot depends on when the case comes up and who has died or retired and who has been elected president since then. So I hate to make any predictions. But what I will say, and I've written about this a little bit, the interesting thing about uh, Fisher is that all the other affirmative action cases that have ever come to the Supreme Court uh, involving race have always been basically black-white. And one point I like to make, and you can see I'm interested in from my talk today, is that most of the beneficiaries of affirmative action in the United States right now, or at least those who are eligible, are not black. And yet, whenever you talk about it, everyone says, well, what about slavery? Well, a lot of groups are benefiting who had nothing to do with slavery. So, so, I, so I, I think Fisher may be the occasion for the Supreme Court to say, for someone to point out, hey, in Fisher, actually, about 20% of the students at University of Texas are Hispanic, about 20% are Asian. That's where the dynamic is. If you get more Hispanics, fewer Asians, blacks really don't play a big role. They're only 3% of the school population. And this may actually uh, lead to a broader discussion of preferences uh, in an increasingly diverse America. Uh, you cannot 
limited affirmative action to a black-white issue. Can I ask David a question on that, Roger? Sure. Why is it that when we put these cases together, we always come up with um, a white plaintiff instead of an Asian plaintiff, who I think can make a much more powerful argument of affirmative tilting the scales against them under these programs? I mean, they get a negative score on their admissions applications. You know, I'm not privy to... I'm not privy to uh, you know, the underlying litigation strategy. But I will say I once spoke to someone uh, at the Center for Individual Rights who brought the case against the University of Michigan in Grutter. And I said, you know, I gave a talk at Michigan once and the dean pointed out that Michigan was a terrible defendant to have because unlike most state universities that would have had to have paid for the litigation out of state funds that they would have had to ask for, Michigan as a university had the statutory ability to spend unlimited funds making up bogus studies to try to show, uh, which is what they did, to try to support their case. And he said, I said, why? So why Michigan? He goes, well, we didn't really have a choice because we had a professor there who was willing to give us the information. And we had a donor who is an alum who was interested. And we don't have the resource. The other side has 20 different organizations and the government on their side. We have a few hundred thousand dollars and we get the cases when we can get them. And we, and we can't be as choosy. So if you're really worried about that, you need to find some donors uh, to these organizations. What's that? I've talked to Sorry, Ilya Shapiro. Going directly to Noel's uh, question, I've talked to Ed Blum, who put together the, uh, the Fisher Challenge and works on other types of cases in this area. And he says that occasionally Asian plaintiffs do go forward, um, and the university immediately pays them off, shuts them down. Uh, he's been unsuccessful in, in getting someone to, you know, willing to run the, in, the entire gauntlet. Uh, for whatever reason, I mean, eventually, I think it, I think it will happen, but it just it just hasn't yet. Okay. Um, my name is Stephen Short. Uh, for Mr. Rosencrantz, you the, raised the issue. And I think it's quite cogent about no treaty can augment a or grant power a Congress a power that the Constitution doesn't allow. I'm wondering about the opposite side. Could there be a a treaty that denies Congress a unquestioned constitutional power? Has that ever surfaced? That's an interesting question. I think I would say no, that a treaty can't actually change the scope of congressional power in either direction. Um, you know, a treaty could stipulate that Congress will use the power that it's been granted in a particular way, I suppose. But no, I don't think that a treaty could um, dec decrease the power of Congress either. Now, I will say, you know, um, uh, a, a uh, a logical corollary of the Missouri-Holland point is decreasing of legislative power. So if you think about it, if a treaty can increase the legislative power of Congress, it follows then that when you abrogate the treaty, then Congress's power has then decreased. And isn't that odd to think about? Um, consider that treaties can be abrogated not just by the president, but actually by our treaty partners. So if Missouri v. Holland's right, then uh, Congress's power can, in theory, be decreased under some circumstances by, for example, the King of England. And that can't be right. It can't be right. So uh, Nick, yeah, that's a nice question. Nick, do you, would you care to say a little bit about current trends in international law in the law schools relative to this issue that you've just raised? Uh, well, yeah. So um, uh, th this issue uh, is at the intersection of these two kind of doctrinal trends. One trend is this explosion of international legal commitments. 
um, not so much treaties, but other sorts of international legal commitments, which the Missouri-Holland principles said to apply to. So there's this explosion of international legal commitments on, on topics that the framers wouldn't really have recognized as international type issues. So on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, though, we have cases like Lopez and Morrison at least suggesting the possibility that Congress might have finite power, might actually be a limit to Congress's power. And this question is at the intersection of those two points. So if Congress's power is limited, but can be increased by one of these uh, international agreements, that's what you know, makes this so uh, rich. And um, yeah, scholars are, you know, as soon as Lopez comes down, as soon as Morrison comes down, scholars are writing articles saying, ah, but let's, maybe we could make a treaty. We could get around this problem. Uh, gentleman right here. This would be a quick follow-up to Knowles' inquiry. As people probably generally know, the California legislature is overwhelmingly Democratic particularly on the liberal side, and there was an effort to go after Proposition 209, which bans racial preferences in California, and the Asian community revolted. So there's an example where the Asians can have an effect on this issue. Yes, up here. Uh, Eric Rasbach with the Beckett Fund. Uh, I was wondering whether on the treaty power uh, whether there's arguments being made to use very broad treaties like, uh, say, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights to change the scope of you know, what we would normally view as Bill of Rights type of issues. And, of course, those often have limits that are much narrower, for example, on speech <laughs> than we would have in this country. So what I, I just wonder whether that was addressed at all in your brief or in, in your scholarship. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, first, yes, people are citing the international, the ICCPR. Uh, and what they're saying is um, we, we can get around Lopez, we can get around Morrison using that exact uh, treaty. So yes, that it, these broad open-ended treaties seem to lend themselves to this sort of argument. At least scholars are making this claim. So that's the ICCPR. And the point you were making about rights is a bit different. So there is a case called Reed v. Covert in which a plurality of the court said a treaty cannot give Congress power to infringe your infringe upon the Bill of Rights or violate the Bill of Rights. Uh, and um, the court in Reed said that's compatible with Missouri v. Holland somehow. I say it isn't. I say I, I don't understand why it is that a treaty could allow Congress to legislate um, to, uh, to get new powers, but can't allow it to violate your rights. I think these cases should come out the same way. I think Reed v. Cover was rightly decided, Missouri Holland wrongly decided. So you can't have a treaty that uh, allows the government to prohibit the, um, uh, the keeping and bearing of arms. That's right. Which is, of course, one of the hot topics. Or, or, or a treaty with the Vatican that says, uh, we'll ban abortion if you ban abortion. No. <laughs> Uh, Gene? Uh, Gene Meyer, Federal Society. I'm curious to, to try something with Nick in terms of what, what if you had a tr trade agreement with some free market country around the world that perhaps <laughs> you found, and you said, we will have this agreement um, 
uh, but we will limit uh, environmental protections or something like that, which would clearly limit, the, if, if deemed valid, would limit the power of Congress to institute such regulations. Would that be unconstitutional because of limiting the power of Congress? Yeah, I think I would. I don't think that would be unconstitutional, and I think the way I would characterize it is it's uh, it's um, describing how we will use powers that the Constitution grants to the branches of government. So, yeah, uh, a tre- I think uncontroversially, a treaty is a promise that we will use our constitutional powers in a particular way. I think that you know, say we'll pass legislation that does X, or we won't pass legislation that does X. Now, of course, you can always abrogate the treaty and do the thing, or you can do the thing anyway and violate the treaty. So it's not really, it's a, what it is, it's an international legal constraint on what Congress can do. But, of course, Congress is allowed to violate that anyway. I mean, it's a matter of domestic law, constitutional law. Jim? Professor Rosencrantz, Tim Sandifer, Pacific Legal Foundation. Um, uh, forgive me, because this is not an area of law that I know very much about, and I have not read your articles, so I'm sure you have an answer for this question. But it seems to me that, that although your point about Congress shall have power to, ma- to allow, enable the president to make treaties is a valuable one, it seems to miss really the point, which is the supremacy clause, which says uh, the Constitution and laws of the United States made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. Now, that provision was written that way in order to ratify pre-existing treaties that were not made under the Constitution of the United States, and which might, perhaps, include an assumption that the, the Continental Congress had powers denied it in the Constitution, but nevertheless, those previous treaties would still be valid. And if that's the case, that would seem to mean that the, the, the clause was written with the conscious intention to allow treaties which might not pass under constitutional scrutiny once the Constitution was ratified still to be enforced. And then it would follow that Congress would have the power to approve of a treaty today because it says which shall be made under the authority of the United States, which doesn't fall within the congressional power. And then your point about Reed would not work because the Bill of Rights comes after this provision and therefore this it doesn't change. Therefore, the Bill of Rights would supersede this provision. And so those are the only things Congress cannot amend under the Supremacy Clause, just like it can't override the Bill of Rights under anything else under the Supremacy Clause. Yeah, so that's a rich, deep, difficult question. I'll take a little crack at it. I think the heart of that question is about the scope of the treaty power. That is, which kinds of treaties does the president have power to enter into? Are there subject matter limitations on treaties or not? What can we do? What can we um, deduce from this quirk of language in the supremacy clause re, uh, regarding treaties? Now, fra- how that's phrased differently from statutes. All of that goes to scope of the treaty power. But I don't think I don't think that tells us anything about this logically distinct question of once we have a valid treaty, can that does that treaty give Congress new legislative power? Uh, a treaty can be self-executing or non-self-executing. A self-executing treaty is itself, of its own force, domestic law of the land per the Supremacy Clause. A non-self-executing treaty is in the nature of a promise that we will go home and do something at home. And the, the Missouri v. Holland point is we cannot, if we make a promise to go home and do something, that doesn't automatically give us power to go home and do that thing if we didn't have the power before. So I think the heart of your question is about scope of the treaty power and doesn't quite speak to this distinct issue of scope of the legislative power pursuant to the treaty. That's what I want to insist cannot increase. But what about the self-executing treaty that did indeed 
either give more power to Congress than it heretofore had or introduced one of the Bill of Rights guarantees. Well, so a, a self-executing treaty wouldn't be giving Congress new power. It would just perhaps be doing something that Congress lacked the power to that's, do. That's right. Uh, so that's the, um, that's the uh, uh, Justice Thomas point in Bond. Justice Thomas is wanting to talk about scope of the treaty power. Can a self-executing treaty go beyond uh, the enumerated powers of Congress? Um, that's, a, that's a deep, important treaty question, but it's not, again, it's not quite our question. Our question is, can a treaty increase the legislative power of Congress? But has that question been broached? Uh, it was broached by Justice Thomas. The court hasn't, the, we don't have, an, no, there's no, um, there's no majority opinion on that question. Yeah. Okay. Next question, uh, right up here. Uh, Just a minute, wait for the microphone. And please raise your hand if you've got questions. All the way in the back there, please. Uh, Andrew Nolan from the Congressional Research Service. This is a question for Professor Rosencrantz. What do you think, and maybe this is an impossible question to answer, but what do you think is motivating Chief Justice Roberts' uh, bond majority? This isn't an individual rights case. This isn't the fear of Lochner where you're taking away from democracy any ability to change uh, constitutional right. We're talking about who should be in charge of crimes like uh, Carol Ann Bond was uh, prosecuted for, the states or the federal government. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know quite what is motivating him. I guess I would say I think that he has a particular conception of judicial minimalism, of what it is to write a narrow judicial opinion, which, you know, I generally mostly approve of, except I think that he's sort of taken it to an extreme that it cannot bear. So he's um, bending, bending over backwards to interpret statutes to avoid constitutional questions that really are squarely presented to him. So I... I I think that's his impulse, and I respect the impulse. I just think he's taking it too far. I think it's also, to a certain extent, in some cases at least, an uncertainty as to where Justice Kennedy would be. Whenever you see a six-justice majority with Roberts and Kennedy joining with the four liberals, I think it's probably a combination of what Nick just said and some uncertainty as to where Justice Kennedy would be if you forced him to confront the issue. I quite agree with that. Gabe? Sorry, uh, I hate to gang up on Professor... Uh, identify yourself. Sorry, uh, Gabe Latner, Cato Institute. I hate to gang up on Professor Rosencrantz, but since Tim raised the supremacy clause, what about preemption? Because so far we've been talking about whether a treaty could expand or decrease Congress's powers, but since this court has, the court has said before that a treaty can preempt state laws, could not Congress use treaties to shut down state policies that it dislikes. So I'm thinking here of drugs mainly because the first prohibition of opium was in response to an international treaty. So couldn't they go to Zimbabwe and say, hey, we'll outlaw all production, sale, and use of marijuana in our country if you do it in yours, and that essentially screws Colorado. Yeah, so again, that's a question about scope of the treaty power. Uh, whether that would, if your hypothetical treaty, I think, is a self-executing treaty, right? It's domestic law of its own force, and that raises the Justice Thomas question, is that a legit treaty? Is that a legitimate thing for us to make a treaty about with Zimbabwe or whomever else? And there's really not a lot of doctrine about that. There's 
the conventional wisdom in the restatement, which is any treaty is fine, including your hypothetical. But then there's Justice Thomas saying, no, that's probably would not be a valid, a, a, um, probably is not of a, a bona fide international concern, I think, is the way he would phrase that. So that's, that, that's what the arguments would sound like if that case were presented. But again, we're on a different issue, which is um, uh, legislative power, scope of the legislative power pursuant to treaty. Or as J- Chief Justice Rehnquist said on more than one occasion, we shall decide that case when it is presented. Hmm. All right, we have come to the end of our panel. And let's uh, conclude with a warm round of applause.